Okay, we'll we'll do an intro and then we'll do a hello. How are we? Because we don't really care. <laughs> <laughs> hey, John, how are you? Mm, like you great. give a shit. <laughs> Welcome to the Nerdfest podcast today. We've got Dan Watkins, John Father, Peter Johnson, Andy Chandler, and I'm Hazel Burton. On our show today, we've got a brand new set of recommendations, including 1917, Jojo Rabbit, and John, what was yours? I've forgotten already. Colour Outer Space. <laughs> Colour Outer Space. <laughs> that wouldn't be a certain cage, would it? It would be. Um, well, <laughs> we've also got a quiz on this episode, so the nerds are going to try and guess the movie from the actors who have starred in it, and I'm going to reveal an actor at a time. So, let's start the show. How is everyone? I'm fine, thanks. <laughs> we're, 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 we're not good. On some of you in trauma. Yes, yeah. we, 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 we haven't watched all of it yet, but we've partial cutted, haven't we, Dan? Um, we have not together. We didn't cut together. But how how long did you last? I lasted fifteen minutes. Ah, uh, Amy and I managed forty two minutes before nice. we had to tap out and give up. We are still talking about cats. I think we are still talking about cats. <laughs> I, I think I would have lasted longer, but Louise started shouting and she literally just went, "No, no, no! Enough of this!" And then we watched cats. Um, <laughs> Yes, so I made it past Rebel Wilson eating cockroaches and ripping off her own skin. Um, I made it past Rum Tum Tugger in his milk bar. I made it past Ray Winston singing and uh, got up to the Dench making her first appearance. And that was where we had had enough Mm -hmm. and couldn't take any more. What I don't get is, so in our sort of uh, messages group, John and Louise were talking about how terrible it was. And because of how terrible you said it was, Dan then felt he had to watch it and inflict it on Amy. And then Ian was reading it and saying, oh, have I got to watch this now? And he goes, no, no, stop doing it. Why do this to yourself? Yeah, it's, it's interesting because I think probably if you like the stage show of it, there's no reason why you wouldn't like the film version of it. Oh, there's so many reasons, Dan. What about if you have eyes? Well, yeah. yes, but... Have you seen the stage show? Because I have. That's equally weird and nonsensical to me. I have seen it before and remember somewhere in Act 2 thinking, when does the story start? Hmm. And it's almost weirder in a way. You haven't got the uncanny valley nature of it, but these people in their makeup and their spandex prowling into the audience and potentially gyrating in your lap. Um, Did you go to a strip club, Dan? uh, No. (laughs) I got, I got kicked out of Cats who tried to put a £10 note in the spandex. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so if you're used to that and you enjoy that in a theatre, you probably aren't going to be offended by the film version of it because the songs are probably all the same. The story is still not there. They're just doing it in a different way. I don't know, Louise pointed out that the music was really bad. Mm. Like the orchestrations, it sounded like it was done like Casio keyboards or something. So it wasn't even a great interpretation of the songs i did think it sounded very like you say keyboard but then i thought oh well cats was a 80s andrew lloyd webber show so it probably did sound like that anyway but you would normally update the orchestration yeah have you ever seen the version of a chorus line with michael douglas no that has sort of these sort of do, 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 do syndromes all the way through and i just remember That's even at the calling t- in the air tonight by phil collins <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I just remember watching the movie and thinking that was going to date horribly so quickly. And then they have, I think, still when you watch it now, it just seems mm-hmm. weird to have these synth drums all over everything. Yeah. Which weren't in the stage version no. of the chorus line, no. So would you recommend our listeners watch it out of curiosity? No, it's boring. <laughs> That's the weird thing. Curiosity killed the cat and cats might kill your curiosity. <laughs> oh, good one. Oh, thank you. Um, it's odd because it looks like there is a level of talent in there somewhere. They've got dancers from the Royal Ballet. They've got renowned street dancers. They've got the choreographer from Hamilton, Andy Blankenbuehler, doing the choreography. But the technology and these digital fursuits they've put on people 
almost mask the talent that is probably mm-hmm. there. Uh, on the sound stages in the green screen in their mocap suits, they were probably doing some amazing dance routines, but you can never quite tell whether that's actually them or whether they've just CG'd the dancing in there. Mm-hmm. It's got this odd remove from reality that I think is probably the main problem because it doesn't look fake enough to be fake and it doesn't mm. look real enough to be real. Mm. It's, yeah. a, it's a weird thing they've done. So they're cat size and they've got tails and so on, but the proportions are human. So it's like a tiny little cat head on a big body. So the heads look too small, the legs look too... It, it, it just looks horrible. It's like a H.R. Geiger directed... <laughs> it does look like they have tried to tie a narrative into it, which the theatre production absolutely doesn't have it. It is just a series of cats introducing themselves. They've got this new character that I think is called Victoria and Idris Elba as McCavity, who is sort of like Thanos, but for cats, I think. <laughs> um, he does turn Rebel Wilson to dust at one point. Um, and he seems to be the villain of the piece. So it looks like this new character is meeting all these new cats and is now part of their group. But evil Idris Elba is trying to disrupt them. So it looks like they've tried to hang a plot onto the songs, but it's not much of a plot. I do feel sorry for a lot of the actors who have starred in this because their CV will be forever tainted. <clears throat> like Tom Hooper trying to find his next gig, he's going to find it hard. You know, um, a lot, lot of people just kind of say, oh, you're in cats. Mm. I don't think the because the actors are all in very small cameo roles and are pretty much unrecognisable. I don't think it's going to do the actors any harm. Mm. Yeah. Um, Tom Hooper's career's fucked, I think. <laughs> you know, well, he's, I, still, he's still got an Oscar, though. He has, And yeah. he is a white man, so he'll probably be fine. Ooh. Oh. Um, oh. Ram Tum Tugger. <laughs> is that your code name for you? <laughs> I'll, I'll be out in the bathroom in a minute, Amy. I'm just having a Rum Tum Tugger. <laughs> 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 it is a weirdly sexual film, Cats. Yeah. There is a lot of gyrating. There's a lot of crotch play, despite them not having visible crotches. I, th- I thought they were just trying to find them. That's why they were doing all the tugging to see yeah. what was down there. You, you, yeah. you saw the Rebel Wilson bit, didn't you? Yes, yeah. Yeah, because she is... Does she not lick her own tail at one point? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's very weird. What's the rating for this film? Is it PG? <laughs> it's, it's a U, I think. I, I can't decide if it's obscene or if it's it's uh, the kind of thing that Only intellectually. children would go for because it's yeah. just bright colours moving around on the screen. You know the moments you get in films where it looks like two characters are about to kiss and their heads get closer together and you think, oh, 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 and then they don't. They did that. But when they're supposed to be cats, cats don't do that, do they? I've never cats seen cats kiss, kiss each other. No. Um, and it just seemed a bit weird mm. that cats would kiss each other in a human... I know it's weird when they're dancing and things. What do they do? Rub their noses? Yeah. Cats don't love. Cats only hate. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I take it you're enjoying having hazel cats staying with you. I am, actually. They're very lovely. We get on very well. Do they sing? Not yet. Not when I'm around, which I am thankful for. And they are so large, they're almost human-sized. One of them is. (laughs) What are their jellical names? Because this comes up very early in the film, after they've said the word jellical about 40 times. There's a whole song about how you have your name, but your jellical name is actually three names, one of which is your name, and then there's another one that seems to be your quality. So you've got Mr. Mistopheles, the magical cat, and you've got Gus, the theatre cat, and... So they're all cat is the third name of all them. I think so. I, I didn't understand what the third part was. Just in case was. gets confused. There was a whole song about it. I respect Sam and Josh too much to lump them in with... James Corden and Rebel Wilson and the rest of them. Oh, I don't. So Josh would be, Josh, I don't land on my feet, cat. He doesn't. He just goes and flops. <laughs> I've never seen him do that. So Josh the floppy cat. Yes. Yeah. Please sing Josh the floppy cat song. <laughs> no. I thought cats always <laughs> landed on their feet. Apart from Josh. And butter, oh, toast always lands butter side down. So if you strap a piece of butter toast to the back of a cat, then the laws of physics are destroyed. (laughs) (laughs) On to our recommendations section. So this is where we have been enjoying something recently and we want the pod world to know about it. So Dan, what have you been enjoying recently? I have just finished reading 
a book by Glenn Berger, best known, despite having a couple of Emmys and things like that, for being the co-writer of the book for Spider-Man Turn Off the Dark. (laughs) The book is called Song of Spider-Man, and it's the inside story of that musical almost from conception through to opening. Is it just page after page of, I'm very, very sorry? No, but it is absolutely fascinating to see it go from its very early stages into its tech rehearsals, which just sounded hellacious in that on a 14-hour day, they'd get through two minutes of the show. Kind of like recording the podcast. (laughs) Yeah. Um, It'll always be perceived as this monumental flop, but actually... It ran for three years. It had 800-odd performances. It's in the top 100 longest runs ever on Broadway. But people don't remember what happened to it after its very, very long run of previews. Glenn Berger was involved in it all the way through. Julie Taymor recruited him. He really thinks very, very highly of her. It's almost an infatuation the effect she has on everybody involved with it. They just go along with her vision, which is pretty uncompromising. Where do I know her name from? She did the Lion King musical, Ah. but she's done films like Across the Universe, The Tempest, Frida, the film about Frida Kahlo was Mm -hmm. her as well. So she's got this very strong visual style and her ideas for it, you think, that doesn't sound very Spider-Man-ish. Why is this a Spider-Man musical? But everybody is just swept along in this tide of creativity They get into rehearsals and the things they think they're going to be able to do, they can't find a way to do. The tech runs and runs and runs. The preview opening night disappears. Bono and the Edge haven't got the songs ready. The money starts to run out. The producer dies. Everything just keeps happening. And there are points in the book where he goes, if we'd only gone a slightly different way there, this, Mm. this and this wouldn't have happened three years later. And eventually they have to drastically rework the script. And there's a point during previews where the dancers are rehearsing one set of routines in the daytime, performing a totally different set of routines in the evening. And because so much of the show is on wires, Mm. the risk of something going wrong if they go into the wrong routine is so high. Tamil gets taken off the project and burns all the bridges. She stops talking to Glenn Berger at this point. They do make up in the postscript of the second edition of the book. But when he first wrote it, they hadn't spoken in years because he stayed with it after she left. And the show that eventually ran for three years on Broadway is totally different to what Tamar had envisioned, and it's just this great mix of where inspiration and creativity bumps into practicality, and they just can't find a way to get along. And it's just really, really interesting to read that story from someone who was there. Isn't this the one where they reviewed the previews in the end? They did, they had to, because there were like 160 of them. It sounds like Julie Taymor was with it later than I thought. So Julie Taymor's version was previewed. It ran for a few months in previews. There is leaked video footage Mm -hmm. of her version. By the time it opened, it was version two. But there were months of it being version one. And is that what was reviewed in some of the early reviews? Yes. And I think they invited people back for version two. Mm. And the reviews were actually more positive. Mm -hmm. It sounded insane. Yeah. Version one, like the Arachne the Spider God and things like yeah. that. And but that's what drew Tamor to it, mm-hmm. this mythological story of Arachne weaving in a contest with the goddess Athena being turned into the first spider. That was what Julie Tamor was interested in. And you can see Marvel's going through its own changes. The Disney ownership comes into it about halfway through this. And you can see they're starting to bristle at this idea and they want it to be a bit more of a conventional Spider-Man story. They're pushing mm-hmm. the Green Goblin. Julie Taymor is not interested in that. She wants to tell Arachne she's the main character. And bit by bit, they whittle down Arachne's part so she's barely a cameo. I've seen some footage, and there are bits where it looks spectacular, and there are bits where it's just so naff and kitsch. You can see why people trusted her, because The Lion King did a similar thing and was phenomenally successful. And she can live off the royalties for The Lion King musical forever and ever and ever. But it just wasn't going to work with Spider-Man, mm-hmm. and nobody quite realised till it was too late. I was not aware this book existed, and I'm going to immediately order it on Amazon because I remember this all happening at the time and being fascinated just watching every possible thing go. It's like the um, Don Quixote of theatre. Mm. Sounds wonderful, yeah. Yeah, but yeah, very, very good. interesting. If you're into mm-hmm. theatre, if you're into Spider-Man, 
And if you're just into hearing what goes on backstage, literally, Mm -hmm. it's well worth a read. Sounds good. John? I've been watching Colour Out of Space, the new science fiction horror film starring Nicolas Cage and Julie Richardson and directed by Richard Stanley. Oh, uh, like Hardware and... Hardware and Dust Devil, making his first film since 1996 when he got... the Dr. Moreau? The one that he got booted off yet. Marlon Brando turned up, painted white with a bucket on his head and insisted on having a miniature psychic of himself. Peak arsehole Val Kilmer (laughs) decided that he didn't want to play the part written for him. I wanted to play one of the other parts instead and refused to work with Richard Stanley. And basically, I think after about a week or so, Richard Stanley got fired. But the interesting postscript is that Richard Stanley managed to get one of the special effects guys to give him one of the monster costumes. So he was on set watching his film be destroyed. And he's back. So what is Colour Out of Space about? Because I've never heard of it. Colour Out of Space is based on a HP Lovecraft short story. There is a family, Nicholas Cage, Julie Richardson, and um, three kids who have moved from the uh, big city to the sticks. Uh, they've inherited Nicholas Cage's dad's farm. Nicholas Cage has decided to farm alpacas. So there's a scene where <laughs> Nicholas Cage gives you a lesson in how to milk an alpaca. <laughs> <laughs> Something has happened in Julie Richardson's past that she's recovering from. Oh, I should also mention, yeah, there, there, there is a shack on their property in which Tommy Chong lives as a weird shamanistic type dude. One morning, a meteorite lands in their front garden. It disappears, but not before infecting the water supply in their well. And crazy shit happens. And it's great. It's a proper horror movie, a proper psychedelic horror movie. Really good body horror in there. So lots of, um, if you think of The Thing... That sort of bodily transformation and mutation. Visually amazing, the use of light, hallucinogenic visuals, amazingly done. Now, okay, you sat down, guys. Mm-hmm. Nicolas Cage isn't the best thing in it. Nicolas <laughs> what? Shut the front door. Shut the front door. <laughs> Does, Nick Cave, mm. Does Nick Cave do the score or something? Uh, no. Um, <laughs> it's very dark and grisly and gruesome and lots of horrible things happen. And... Every so often, Nicolas Cage goes full cage and it's distracting and it doesn't fit in with the tone of the rest of the film. <laughs> oh I my never God, thought I I'd never... hear him say that. No. Um, so when he goes gonzo in Mandy, it works brilliantly. When he goes gonzo in uh, Vampire's Kiss, amazing. But a lot of the rest of the film is, und- it, well, it's not understated. It's batshit crazy, but it's dark batshit crazy. And I think Nicolas Cage sometimes gets laughs where they're not warranted. There's a bit where he's trying to escape in his car and the car engine doesn't work. And he's obviously frustrated and scared. He's trying to get away from the house and he spends two minutes just shouting cocksucker, cocksucker, cocksucker over and over again whilst hitting the steering wheel and the roof. So there's those real Nick Cage moments in there, but they jar in context with the tone of the rest of the film. I think, you know, it's a, he could have dialed it down a, a tiny bit, but <laughs> it's almost like, you know, if you have Nick Cage in a horror film, you want those Nick Cage moments, and I don't think it fit in perfectly with the rest of the film. But that's only because I really loved the rest of the film. There's some shoddy CGI in there, but I think it's very low budget, and I think, you know, you you, you can't really blame it for that. But what it does with the tiny budget in terms of some of the effects towards the end is amazing. Uh, Without going to spoilers, it doesn't tie up exactly how you would want it to. You go away to a separate story and it takes you away from the main focus of what you want to be seeing for a little bit too long in the last half hour or so. But I'm picking holes in it because I really, really enjoyed it. And I like 90% of Nick Cage's performance, but there's just one or two moments where you go, it's entertaining, but it's taking me out of the film. Sounds mm. very interesting. Um, and I can't decide if I want to see it. Or I think you would like it and I would recommend it. See... I'm fine with Nicolas Cage being weird. Um, Mm -hmm. That'll be fun. And I might need a bit of fun because body horror is something that that Mm. doesn't sit very well with me. But what you just said about the conclusion, I think is something, that's the kind of thing that really irks me about Mm -hmm. films. Um, So that's really the main thing that's putting me off. But you think it's still worth a go, do you? Oh, definitely, yeah. I mean, uh, the conclusion works, but you're following one story and you want to stay with these characters and 
suddenly you're following different characters that aren't quite as interesting. It's fucking dark in some places. There's some really grim stuff in there with one particular image towards the end that is quite haunting. So how many of the top performances out of ten? Um, nine. Hmm. Caveat, Hazel and Dan, no. <laughs> Noted. Ah, wasn't going to anyway. <laughs> no. <laughs> you lost me at body horror. Yeah. We're talking Cronenberg type body Cronenberg. horror. Most of that I'm all right with. Doing animal torture, I'm guessing? Not torture, but things happen to animals. Right, yeah. Hard pass. Have you watched The Thing, the 1982 thing? No. I'm trying to think of an example, something similar, but uh, it's not the animals have been tortured, it's the animals become unpleasant and change. Oh. So if you think of the 1982 thing, think um, The Fly, think Society, the Brian Usner film, that kind of that kind That's of thing. a weird film. <laughs> but it's so well done, and I'm pleased to have Richard Stanley back, and I hope we don't have to wait 20-odd years until his next film. Cool. cool. Peter? For mine, I'd like to recommend Jojo Rabbit. This is Taika Waititi's movie about a 10-year-old boy in World War II Germany, where the kids are all getting enrolled in the Hitler Youth and encouraged to inform on their parents, and people are being disappeared all around. But despite this, it manages to maintain a much lighter tone than you'd expect, and has a much more positive message than the setting would make you think. Uh, Dan, you've, you've seen it, haven't you? I have, yes. We went to the cinema to see it and really enjoyed it. It's adapted from a 2008 bestseller, and it was written and directed by Waititi, who also plays the boy's imaginary friend, a rather camp version of Hitler, <laughs> which is probably what this film's going to be remembered for, I'm sure. It starts when the little boy, Jojo, who spends most of his time in a fun-sized German army uniform, is picked on by the other kids at the camp where they're getting basic training. He tries to prove how brave he is with a live grenade, but only succeeds in blowing himself up and getting invalided out of training. Stuck at home on his own, he hears a noise upstairs to discover Elsa, a Jewish girl hiding in the attic upstairs. The kids are great, which includes his best friend who's adorable. Mm-hmm. Uh, as are the supporting adult cast with Scarlett Johansson as his mother and Sam Rockwell bringing his usual great performance to whatever he's in. In this case, he's a one-eyed officer who's turned to drink. It's much more the gentle feel of Hunt for the Wilder People than the slapstick of What We Do in the Shadows or the full-on comedy of Thor Ragnarok. I'll do uh, comedy in inverted commas for you, Andy, because I know how much you love Thor Ragnarok. Very kind, I appreciate it. <laughs> uh, I think it handles a tricky tone better than it might. Whilst it contains a sense of fun throughout, there is an ever-present threat of discovery, with collaborators seen hanging in the market square, and the feeling that Stephen Merchant's smiling Gestapo officer would have no hesitation in killing them all if he finds anything out of place as he searches the house. There are one or two shocking moments. That said, it's not trying to be realistic. You could say it's this boy's worldview and how he's viewing the terrible situation around him, either as naivete or a coping mechanism. Yeah, it's set towards the end of the Second World War. So Jojo's a boy who has grown up in that regime. His views, or what he thinks are his views, are completely extreme. And Scarlett Johansson, as his mum, knows that he's not actually like that. He doesn't genuinely believe these things. And it's the discovery of Elsa, played by Thomas and Mackenzie, who's really, really good, where he starts to find these complications. and that hook of the imaginary version of Hitler as his friend comes into play as Jojo starts to develop his own thoughts beyond what the pamphlets and the Hitler Youth meetings have told him. People who seem quite comical at the start, like Stephen Merchant's Gestapo officer, become more sinister as the film develops. And he has got the tone of the film absolutely right. I really enjoyed him more than I think I've enjoyed him in anything else I've seen him in. There's a scene of greetings with him and his underlings, which is really, really funny. But if anything even slightly goes wrong, terrible things are going to happen. For me, it got the balance absolutely right. I know there have been reviews that loved it, and there are ones that have hated it for those same reasons, not thinking those tones were balanced right. But I thought they were. Sounds like you did as well, Peter. Definitely. Yeah. They have varied. The Guardian gave it three stars. Critics gave it 80% on Rotten Tomatoes. And the audience gave it 95%. Mm-hmm. So it seems to generally have gone down pretty well. It's maybe not a slam dunk of a movie just because of the series of what it's trying to deal with. Mm. 
and the uncomfortableness that that occasionally brings. But uh, if, I think if you like Waititi, you, you'll enjoy the film. Yeah, mm. it's not my favourite thing he's done, but I did really enjoy it. And there's a sequence in the opening credits that shows the mania of Hitler's rise to power and Nazi party fanaticism, and it frames it in a way that evokes something completely different. And the music choice in that sequence does the same thing, and it makes you realise what kind of a world Jojo's living in. Is it the ketchup song by Last Ketchup? It is, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and they've managed to CG Hitler doing the Macarena. In the original German, obviously. <laughs> yeah, in the original German. Which goes how again, John? Die ketchup. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> He's such a polyglot. Yes. <laughs> uh, yes, so how many rabbits out of ten oh, would you give it? Um, definite eight and a half. Yeah. No. Half a rabbit? You can't do that. Oh, yes. Neither Funny can Jojo. Should... Yeah. <laughs> it's Actually, not the favourite. That's quite an appropriate comment. Oh, no. Oh, no. Oh, no. No, it's fine. No, no don't, don't, don't worry. I did, I did think of you at that point, but mm. nothing happens on screen. Yeah. I, I, I really want to see it. I just... Um, I don't know. It, there was like other films that I chose above it, like mm. Little Women in 1917. Or was it that you had to take Andy and he wouldn't Oh, he refuses. <laughs> yeah. I've heard Jojo Rabbit described as an anti-hate satire, um, mm-hmm. and I don't want to watch the film, but I've, I've seen trailers, I've seen interviews, I've, I've read reviews, and um, I'm, I'm interested to know if, if you feel that it is satirical. I think that satire does really have to use comedy and exaggeration to make a specific point and, and reveal something about your target, and the impression I've gotten um, perhaps coloured by my existing opinion of Mr. Waititi, is that rather than genuinely making a statement, all he's done is put on a costume and started acting like a clown. Um, do you think that satire is an apt descriptor of this film? I get some degree of what you're saying. I think it is taking something which is horrible and uh, giving him a silly voice to some extent, but I think in the context of the film, it, it's fine. In the world he's creating but you've got to realise he's not showing the real world. Yeah, and the anti-hate part of it for me isn't necessarily in the depiction of Hitler or the Nazis, but the... In the boy's lesson? Yeah, the discovery of Elsa and the depiction of Jews and what he thinks he thinks about Jews. Mm. And he's got these incredibly exaggerated (laughs) ideas of what Jewish people are like. Borat style, I've heard. Yeah, which start to get broken down. And I think with the rise of anti-Semitism in the current world and people's inclination to just take anything you hear about a group that you hate and believe it's true, if you hear that somebody with the opposite views to you Mm. has done something, in today's world, you're just inclined to believe it and heap onto it. Mm. You can see parallels in what Jojo thinks. It's interacting with Elsa that makes him start to realise that maybe what everybody has been telling him, i.e. what he's been reading on Twitter or watching on Fox News, is not actually the case. And I think to that degree, it works very well as a satire. I can't Mm, imagine the sort of people that would need to see the film to be changed like that other sort of people that are going to go and see the film, unfortunately. Taika Waititi, um, if rumours are to be believed, a new Star Wars director. (laughs) But he's rumoured to be directing half the films. Half, in all the of world, the half of all the films at the moment. You must have mm. at least half a dozen projects it, on the go. Apparently when uh, those rumours came out, he put on his Twitter feed um, the Fleetwood Mac album. Huh. Mm. Rumours. Tusk. <laughs> <laughs> Tusk is a great film. So that's their random <laughs> okay. no, Wow. Um, is no, that the no, Walrus thing? Yes. No, thank you. <laughs> no. It's not a bad album. No, but it's a better film. It's not based on the album, is it? The song is in the film. Okay. Yeah, having seen the rest of the film, I think the majority of the budget went on getting that song for the film. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm, I'm done with Star Wars. There's only three good Star Wars films as far as I'm concerned, so Taika Waititi can take his shot. I'm not going to watch it either way. And they can do a new trilogy because it always has to be a trilogy for some reason, and they can get Michael Bay and Joel Schumacher <laughs> to do the other ones. <laughs> <laughs> We just tell them that's what they're doing and keep them out of action for 10 years. <laughs> Andy, what would you like to recommend? I am going to make a very conventional recommendation. Uh, it's 1917, uh, which is all over the place at the moment and has 10 Academy Award nominations, but it's absolutely wonderful. 
During the First World War, two British soldiers are sent on a seemingly impossible mission to cross enemy territory and deliver a message that will save the lives of 1,600 men by calling off an attack doomed to fail. Uh, it's directed, produced and co-written by Sam Mendes and based in part on an account told to him by his grandfather, Alfred. It's well known that the film is shot in a number of long takes uh, with invisible cuts that create the appearance of the entire film being one continuous shot, which I was interested by but worried even that it might be just a bit of a gimmick and it definitely isn't. It is executed flawlessly. It's wonderful, um, brilliantly done and it's, it's hugely effective. So I got swept up in the film very quickly and I stopped looking for places where they might have made an invisible cut and just enjoyed it. It creates an atmosphere of relentless tension, uh, palpable danger, and I was kind of fully engaged with the characters and on board with their experience. It made it feel immersive. It's kind of simple narratively. There's um, this mission, they go on the mission, and then it happens. Um, so there's no extraneous waste, there's no flab. Um, everything's geared towards the, the, the one narrative. There are clear stakes clear obstacles that they need to overcome and a ticking clock and everything is pulling in the same direction. Uh, there's no confusion. And every single aspect of the film is absolutely brilliant. Uh, the acting is superb, understated. Uh, no one dances down any stairs at any point, but they're, they're very, very good, fully convincing. The direction is excellent. Production design is great. They head out into no man's land and there are corpses um, hanging off barbed wire. It's, it's mm. not overly gruesome that you don't get any close-ups. But you so there's one very gruesome moment, I would argue. Yes. <laughs> yeah. But it, it doesn't dwell on it. No. no. It happens, they move on. Mm. That relentlessness that you talk about means that you don't dwell on these moments of horror, but the horror of it is that they both don't and can't mm. Yeah, well, that, on it. that's they can't the thing stop. that you have to keep going. You know, you that was that was the time you had. You know, friends just die every single day, and you had to keep going, and you really felt that symmetry from the film. Yeah, and First World War is one of those periods in history that I'm always incredibly drawn to. Mm. Reading as much as I can during the centenary years, watching documentaries like Peter Jackson's going to the First World War galleries at the Imperial War Museum, where I did bump into Christopher Nolan, who had been Ooh. researching Dunkirk, I believe, mm. at the time. Um, mm. And it was like, I like your films. And he said, thanks. And uh, <laughs> yes, anyway. Um, and there's a big shot running alongside a trench as people are climbing up out of the trench and running into an attack. And you see the individuals and you're caring about the individuals, but every single one of those background soldiers who's about to die is an individual and they were all real individuals and this was happening on both sides and you get to meet a few of the commanders during this film and their differing attitudes just tell you so much there's a line from one of them that gets you in the gut mm -hmm. and you just get reduced to tears at the end just at the thought mm -hmm. of it World, exactly World, it. World War One films do it do that to me anyway but this did it so very effectively. Yeah, I think that's brilliantly put. Um, I, I've, at the end, felt kind of overwhelmed by the experience of it. I, I was physically shaken by the film. Um, I was unsteady on my feet as I got up to leave. It, it brought tears to my eyes. I've never, ever felt like that at the end of a film before. Mm. Um, it was, I, I felt drained. I felt um, fatigued uh, vicariously. I'd, I'd um, yeah. picked up their their tiredness um from from watching it uh, it was uh, it's, it's just more powerful than any film i've ever seen before you are aware that we're going to re-edit the podcast so it sounds like you have just been talking about cats <laughs> yeah i'm okay with that <laughs> yeah there's been a lot being talked about the technical capabilities of the film the cinematography uh you know Roger which is Deacon's incredible is, is, oh, is yeah. incredible his best Particularly, maybe about two thirds into the film, uh, it's, ooh, it's amazing. The set design, the lighting, yeah. it's just. Are you thinking that that sequence where it's at night and everything is lit yeah. by fires and it's orange and black and it looks like a nightmare? Yeah, exactly. Um, so I think a lot of things said about that, but not so much on the performances. But you know, they rehearsed this film for six months before they started shooting because they were trying to film it. I think in about seven or eight minute takes to try and make it feel like this one one tracking shot 
I mean, the the hostile working environment that was shooting 1917, incredible, you know, really, really deep, deep mud and um, all sorts of things that you would find in a trench. I don't know why the performances haven't got more recognition than they have, because I just think they're incredible. That maybe if the first trailer hadn't been all about how they did it, you might not have got that. Mm. But aside from the two central performances, you've got all these very good seasoned mm. British actors, people like Andrew Scott, Colin Firth, Benedict Cumberbatch, Mark Strong, mm-hmm. turn up. They've pretty much got one scene. They make the impact. They get you in the feels or they make you angry or they cheer you up and then they're gone. They don't turn up again in the film because of the nature of it. But it's a testament to how good they all are that in a minute or two, they can leave you with that level of Mm -hmm. memorableness. So how many impossible messages out of 10? (laughs) 10 out of 10. It is a perfect movie. It's possibly the very best I've ever seen. Oh, wow. I'd also say that if if you've ever watched a a superhero film and you've you've seen that that hero moment, say Captain Marvel getting up or... um, just, just the part that makes you go, yeah, go on, put on your cape and go get Thanos. 1917 has the very best hero moment I've ever seen in any film. Mm-hmm. And um, you, you'll know it when you see it. And it's just yeah. it's, oh, oh, it's amazing. Courage. Mm-hmm. Breath out of your lungs and it's mm-hmm. not going back in. <laughs> yeah. So it says, if you see this film, you'll die. Worth it. <laughs> yeah. Switching genres quite drastically to something completely different. If you're a theatre fan, Chances are you may well have seen the play that goes wrong. It started off in a, uh, an old pub in London in front of about 12 people and word of mouth brought it to the West End uh, where it remains. There's also a Broadway production of it, I believe, that J.J. Abrams had a, had a hand in producing. Yes, and it's, I think it's gone into dozens of different languages mm-hmm. in all sorts of countries yeah. around the world. How do you do lens flare on stage with J.J. Abrams? <laughs> Um, so the makers of the play that goes wrong have brought a new sitcom to uh, the BBC. It's called The Goes Wrong Show. There is a limited series on at the moment. Uh, I have seen four episodes. I think there'll be six altogether. And it's filmed in front of a, a live studio audience. The first episode of the series is actually probably the weakest. So uh, if you are tempted to watch it, I would encourage you to keep going. It's, uh, it's called The Spirit of Christmas, the first one. And it sees Santa come to town with his elves and try and solve a, a little girl's Christmas woes. Yeah. So do the, they, sorry, do they have to be watched in order? No, no, they're, they're, they're yeah. completely contained uh, uh, series. So you've got a gripping courtroom drama which is called A Trial to Watch. It's my favourite one so far. <laughs> You've got a Second World War spy thriller called The Pilot. which is My isn't, least favourite so far. Which isn't The Pilot, <laughs> which is a running joke. Yes, that's your least favourite one. That's my least favourite one. I, ah. didn't, I didn't find that one funny mm-hmm. at all. But the one after that was A Trial to Watch, which mm-hmm. was very, very entertaining. Mm-hmm. The concept of the series is sort of similar to The Play That Goes Wrong and Peter Pan Goes Wrong and most of their other theatre productions in that they are playing the Cornley Polytechnic Drama Society who are trying to put on a play and it goes wrong. Mm -hmm. So the Cornley Society have been given a chance on the BBC to do a play of the week, which is how they're able to do a totally different self-contained story each episode in a different genre Mm -hmm. because it's play of the week. Yeah. And what I what I really like about it, there's several things I like about it, but um, the commitment from the actors is incredible. The, the role demands to be you to be quite um, physically committed. Yeah, um, Bryony Corrigan, who's one of the yeah. cast members, she can do a pratfall. Yes, there's one. There's one scene where she is running on a treadmill, um, and the treadmill goes wrong, and um, she is catapulted off into a. Uh, I think it's like a pile of weights in the background, and that was her. That wasn't her stunt double. The, the actors, I think, they do about ninety percent, and then when the when it's really dangerous, they bring in a stunt double. So, yeah, they put their bodies through a lot. Um, a running gag in one of the episodes is that the set is in two halves, and it comes together, and it's supposed to fit together seamlessly when it comes on from either side of the set but uh, after it's done correctly first as a living room uh, then it comes on as half a living room and half a morgue and half a kitchen and, and, and half a bathroom and that presents a problem when the living room had stairs and then suddenly you've only got half a staircase so they've got to try and find other ways to um, sort of you know, get down the staircase. 
But I love how committed the actors are, you know, when props don't turn out to be what they thought they were going to be. They, you can see the kind of look of panic on their face, but they try and make it work because they understand that it's in front of a live audience. So they do start, you know, decorating the Christmas tree with sausages and, and things like that. And I just, I just love that because I think what we, what, well, certainly what I enjoy a lot in, in improv is when the scene sort of goes wrong and you're looking at the actors to see how they're going to deal with it. And when they shy away, that's when it doesn't work so well. When it's they, not going when wrong though, is it? Really, it's planned going wrong. It's, I'm like, it's planned like? going wrong on the level of the production you're seeing, but in terms mm. of you place yourself as the audience of watching the Cornley Society, it's going wrong for them. Yeah. It's going right for the people playing those people, Yeah, but they are trying to put on a murder mystery or mm-hmm. a courtroom yeah. drama. That is going wrong, but what we are watching is not if that makes yeah, sense. It's yeah, it's testament to how good the performances are that you kind of, or I believe that they are trying to put on the best play possible despite everything going wrong around them. And I never see something coming, um, mm-hmm. you know, in terms of an explosion or, a, you know, a prop going awry or anything like that. I genuinely believe it's all happening right there and that's a testament to the performances. The ones I've liked best have been the ones that have used another improv technique of reincorporation. Mm. So something that goes slightly wrong at the start of the episode continues to develop, and by the end, it's reached its most extreme degree. And the things that happen, you know, once within that, that might be a set piece or it might be a smaller thing, I don't get as much pleasure out of. So the series has been quite hit or miss for me. Yeah. I think I've loved half of them and half of them I've thought, mm, that one wasn't as good. And having been to watch the play that goes wrong and seen Peter Pan goes wrong, you recognise a lot of the tropes that they use in the series. Mm-hmm. They're in the company. They've got these almost archetype characters. You've got mm-hmm. the one who can't remember lines. You've got the one who, whenever the audience reacts to something yeah. he <laughs> says or does, he breaks character <laughs> and looks out at them. Yeah. You've got the one who wants to be the sultry femme fatale. You've got the one who does the pratfalls. You've got the director trying to hold it together. You've got the gruff um, one who gets frustrated at it going wrong. And these same characters are in each episode. So even though they're standalone, you can start to recognise mm-hmm. what might go wrong because of who the characters are, which is quite a nice way of doing it for and TV. I think they've adapted it reasonably um, well. They know their characters inside out. Over Christmas, we put the first episode on and watched it with my parents. And I had to pause it about two thirds of the way through because my mum and dad couldn't breathe for laughing. <laughs> and the fact that it made them laugh that much, I give it yeah. a ringing endorsement for that. It is very subjective. It's, yeah. um, you know, it's very broad, it's very slapstick, it's not going to be for everyone. If you don't enjoy that sort of thing, you might not enjoy the series, but if you do like that sort of thing, it, it does work very well. And I've... for those that don't, they have the comedy about a bank robbery, mm. which is not a goes wrong style thing. It's more of a straightforward gag, 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 Zucker, Abram, Zucker yeah. style thing. Mm. And I know people who really like that, but don't like the play that goes wrong and vice versa. Mm. I've seen something that was shown on TV a while ago. Now, I don't know whether it was the play that goes wrong or it was one of the follow-up ones, and was, but it was definitely the same team doing it. And it just, it just seemed really corny, very predictable, a little cringy to watch, uh, the, the bits I saw. I think I may have talked previously about seeing a play where the lead and someone else corpsed for about five, ten minutes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then after a while you think, hang on, they do this every night. It's not real. It doesn't, it doesn't feel mm. right. Uh, and that's kind of how I felt when I was watching it. I saw the Christmas one. So was it Peter Pan a couple of years ago? They did. That was their first TV. Yeah. Mm. And I oh. turned it off after half an hour because I couldn't bear it. <laughs> I just really didn't like it. Mm-hmm. Um, take corpse in fake things going wrong. It seemed I just don't get as a concept as I say it's, it's, I think it is a very subjective thing so people I know either love it or hate mm-hmm. it I don't know anybody who's ambivalent about it mm. I found it interesting that you would like some and not like others in, mm. in, a, in a short run of stuff with the same actors yeah it's interesting they've managed to get something that little bit different because they changed genre so as mm-hmm. Hazel said the set design 
in the courtroom drama is the big thing that goes wrong. And that's that little bit different. So a lot of that stuff we hadn't seen yet. Mm -hmm. And it was quite new and it was quite novel. Their World War II drama was on a smaller scale and didn't just didn't quite work for me. A lot of that was stuff that I'd seen in their theatre productions and thought, oh, that's this gag Mm -hmm. that they used in that play. Whereas the ones I've really liked have done stuff that I haven't seen them do. They've got a new show that I'm interested in, which is a magic show that goes wrong. Yes, with, done in conjunction with Penn and Teller. Yes, which I'm interested because I'm a big Penn and Teller fan. Possibly not enough to go and see it, unless I'm in London for something else and I've got a free evening. Yeah. Um, what's, what they've done really well in London, actually, is they have the cheapest tickets in the West End. You can get to see one of their shows for a tenner. And they quite often, certainly the play that goes wrong, runs on a Sunday. So it's on on a night that nothing else is on. Mm-hmm. So if you happen to be down for a couple of days and you're there on a Sunday night, it is the thing that you can go and see. Were they not the first people to have three shows on simultaneously on, mm-hmm. in the West End? Yeah. Um, which from being lights, camera, improv, uh, performing at the Fringe, you know, they're all Lambda graduates, but mm-hmm. they have gone from doing improv above a pub to being on Broadway and the West End and having 30-odd different touring productions and a primetime BBC One TV show. It's inspirational, isn't it, John? Damn, damn, damn. Yeah. Shall we sell out? Let's, Let's. please. <laughs> JJ, call us. Call us, JJ. So how many mistaken props out of 10 would you give it? I'm going to give it eight. All right, I have another quiz. And you have to try and guess the connection between the films. There's a link and it's either an actor or a director. Ten altogether. And we're all playing individually. So buzz when you think you know the answer. Do we have any buzzy noises? Um, You are entitled to come up with them. Dan, do you have a noise? Link. (laughs) Peter? Wee! Mine is, why God, why? (laughs) (laughs) Okay. All right. Number one. So are you going to read all four out? going to read all four out and then the quickest to buzz in with their retrospective buzz. Uh, can we buzz after in all if we know after We've got three. to listen to all four. You don't have to, but oh, for the about, listener's sake, it might be nice. How about we get four <laughs> points to be buzzing after one? <laughs> <laughs> okay, yeah. Three if after two, two. But if you buzz in, you're out if you're yes, wrong. Yes, I like that idea. Okay. You're frozen out for the question if you buzz in with the incorrect answer. Okay, okay. Link number one. The Hunt for Red October. No buzzes. Star Wars, The Rise of Skywalker. Number three. Coming to America. Link. James Earl Jones? Correct. Last one was going to be The Lion King. All right. So, Dan has got... (laughs) <laughs> what was the point system? Two, I think. Two, Two points. points, yeah. Okay. All right, the next one. Out of Africa. For one point. No, for four points. <laughs> the deer hunter. Why, God, why? John? Bill Streep. Correct. Yep, next one was going to be Kramer versus Kramer. It was the first person I thought of, but I just didn't know. And then the next one was going to be Mamma Mia. So John now has three points. All right, next one. Number one, National Lampoon's Vacation. Little Shop of Horrors. We can guess Rick Moranis. Nope, frozen out. Cool Runnings. Why, God, why? There it is now. Sir John Kander. That's correct. So John's now on five. Away We Go. Jarhead. Link. Sam Mendes? Correct. Yes. Three points to Dan. So Dan is now on five. On five. And John is now on five. One flew over the cookie's nest. Dumbo. Why, God, why? Yep. Dan and DeVita. Correct. Three points. Eight points altogether. You have to scream quite so loud. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Cloud Atlas. Swordfish. Link. Yep. Ali Berry. Correct. Yep. 
Next one's going to be X-Men and then Die Another Day. So you both want eight? Mm-hmm. Yeah. How are you doing, Peter? You know the answer to that question. <laughs> I'm just behind each time. Yeah. <laughs> Star Wars The Phantom Menace. The Bling Ring. The Link. God... Yep, Dan? Sophia Coppola. Yes. Mm. I think I'll give you that for three points. Mm. Yep. 11 points. Good call. Well done. Yeah, acted in one and directed the other, is that right? She was given yes. a yeah, given a cameo as a handmaiden, I think. Yeah. And then it was going to be The Godfather, where she was a baby and lost in translation. Okay. Three left. Avengers Endgame. Anyone buzzing for that? <laughs> like Tom Holland. <laughs> oh, Dan. oh, Dan's out. Dan. <laughs> Home Alone 3. The Prestige. For one point, Hitchcock. We, is it Scarlett Johansson? It is Scarlett Johansson, yes. Of course, yes, yeah. The Peter's on one. <laughs> All right, don't say it like that. <laughs> Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. Million Dollar Baby. Invictus. Link. Morgan Freeman. Correct. Mm. Two points. You're now on 13. The next one was going to be Batman Begins. And the last one. Grease 2. Why, Wee. God, why? John. Michelle Pfeiffer. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> that's exactly what I was going for as well. Bloody hell. Be the only shirt from Grease 2 that's been in anything subsequently. Yeah. Four points. <laughs> so uh, I think that leaves... John on 12, 12, Dan on 13. Yep, that's a quiz. Hooray. <laughs> <laughs> that's an excellent quiz. Yes, thank you. And that brings us to the end of another Nerdfest episode. Thank you so much for listening. Do check us out on social media. We're at Nerdfest UK on Twitter and Facebook. It would please us enormously if you could leave us a little rating, uh, perhaps even a review if you've got the time. Hey, John, mm-hmm. what are you going to do for for people who leave us a, a review for this well, episode? If anyone follows us on Twitter, I will follow them back. But I haven't yet decided if I mean on Twitter or in real life. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Nothing like a mild threat to encourage people to leave a positive review. We will be back in two weeks' time with more quizzes and might even have the return of a shameful gap. Until then, you've been listening to... A man who weirdly enjoyed the cast recording of Spider-Man Turn Off the Dark. A confused John Farthing and his invisible friend Donald Trump. (laughs) Uh, A man who wishes we could record a podcast in one uninterrupted take. (laughs) A man who desperately wants you to go watch 1970. (laughs) And I'm Peter Johnson. We'll see you next time. (laughs) Bye. Bye. (laughs) That went wrong, didn't it? Oh, 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 my name's Hazel. My bad. The show is funnier (laughs) than that. (laughs) (laughs) Not as funny as your face. Thank you. Wow. <laughs>